been studying the necessity, the importance of prayer, the various aspects of prayer, and I want us to turn tonight to a passage in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 4, for our study tonight. Whatever doctrine the Bible teaches, it amply illustrates no pastor or Sunday school teacher or Bible teacher has to search through magazines or current events to find illustrations to illustrate the truths of God's Word. While that's nothing wrong of sharing current events and those kinds of things, we should first look for illustrations of what the Bible teaches in the pages itself. And here before us, we find a woman of great necessity. She is sorely pressed, and we see the urgency of her life. And I believe that this passage before us so clearly illustrates the the urgency of prayer, the necessity of prayer, the sufficiency of prayer, and the means that the Lord uses to meet our needs. 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 1, Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and their creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Reminds us of Peter at the, at the temple. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. What am I to do about that? Elisha, as a, as a prophet, was as sore oppressed as she was as far as resources are concerned. And it seems almost cruel, the, the question that he answers her, but have you often seen that God answers our needs by asking us probing questions? And those questions are for us to go beyond the surface. We, we see the problem looming, the person, the circumstance. But as always, deep underneath those things are what God wants to show us. And so Elisha here, representing the Lord to this woman, asked her, what? Shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? A ridiculous question as far as she was concerned. She wouldn't be coming to him if she had something, anything of value whatsoever. Again, questions in the scripture, questions for the Lord are not for him. He knows all things. The questions are for us to do inventory, to ransack our hearts and minds, our thinking, He's getting us to rethink what we are thinking. What do you have in your house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house. But that wasn't true, was it? We often look down on those things that we do have. What are these among among so many? How could these loaves and fishes feed so many? Well, I have nothing. Oh, well, because she was an honest woman, she did have to say, Save a pot of oil. Then said he, Go borrow the vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow not a few. He emphasizes that she's to borrow all that she can, not just a few. When thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door. That sounds like another teaching about prayer, doesn't it? Thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Enter your closet, shut the door. Here, the prophet tells her, shut the door. This will be no spectacle for others to see. This is, after all, a private matter. 
And the deep needs of the heart and soul are a matter that should be spread out before the Lord. The neighbors will not view this miraculous thing that takes place. This will be a very secret and sacred happening in this woman's life and in the development of the faith of her sons, though grieving as they are. And thou shalt and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons. We see obedience. No blessings from the Lord are to be expected apart from obedience. We do not claim promises that we do not intend to obey. God will do all that he said he will do. He can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. But let the double-minded man not think he'll receive anything of the Lord. Let him ask in faith, believing. These are conditions to prayers. Oh, Lord, deliver me of this sin with no intent, intention at all to let go of the sin. That, that kind of praying never gets blessed. And this woman obeys. She shut the door upon her and her, upon her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured out. Oh, what a scene we see here, pouring out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full. And she said unto her son, bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, there's not a vessel more. Can you imagine the amazement of these boys who are about to be sold as indentured servants to pay off their daddy's debt. There's not another empty vessel. We borrowed all we could in the neighborhood and every one of them are full. And the oil stayed. Then she came out and told the man of God, it's always good to give testimony when prayer has been answered. It's always good to give glory to where glory belongs. She didn't praise the man of God. She told the man of God that God did what he said he would do. And he said, go sell the oil and pay thy debt and live thou and thy children of the rest. In her day, there could not have been a more pitiful creature than a widow. A widow was a destitute being, especially if there was no grown son to care for her or a near kinsman redeemer, as the Lord provided for in the Old Testament economy, obviously this, this woman has neither, neither son to care for her, for her or a kinsman redeemer, and added to that the peculiar calling of her husband, that of a prophet, might have caused those who would have looked her way to stand afar. There was no one to help. Lamentation 1 verse 1 says, How doth the city sit and solitary, that was full of people. How has she become as a widow? And there the prophet describes the city's desolation as a widow. The Holy Spirit uses a widow to show how desolate the city was. Corrupt Babylon boasted in Revelation 18, verse 7, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Her husband was a ministry student for our practical purposes to describe what he was, enrolled in the school of the prophets. He was of that 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, but had suffered grievously because of his standing and his calling. He was training for the ministry under the prophet Elisha. Have you ever met a rich Bible college student or seminary student 
There he was. He'd given himself over to the work of the Lord. And the Lord, in his sovereignty, takes him home. Unfortunately, he died leaving her not only a widow, but a widow with a pressing debt. Now, we need not think that this man had done something wrong because there was a debt. We're to live prudently and frugally as possible, but some people, especially in the situation of this prophet, died in a situation where there was a debt and his wife was sorely pressed. The old ancient rabbis thought that the creditor who was seeking payment was Jehoram, the son of Ahab, who was ruthless and would have stopped at no means to collect the debt that this woman owed. Her creditor, whoever he was, was demanding as he could pay, uh, he, he could require payment in full. We have lived in such luxury and such elongated payments that most of our generation have never, at this day, have never lived in a day where creditors could call in the payment in full. But if you read the fine print, that's exactly what it says. And this is what was done in this time. It could be done. And so he was requiring her to pay her debt in full. If she did not, he would take her two sons as indentured servants to pay off their father's debt, which was also legal. Notice the Bible says here there cried a certain woman, and we can imagine that she did. Of course, this is not just physical tears, although I'm sure when she came to the prophet Elisha, the tears were streaming down her face. It's one thing to be a widow. It's one thing to be bereaved of the the love of your life your husband. It's another thing to be a widow left with children, but it's another thing altogether to have those children about to be seized and taken from you for the rest of their lives, no doubt, to pay off their father's debt. And so her burden was heavy. And I'm sure tonight I'm speaking to those who have heavy, heavy burdens, unspeakable burdens. You may be saying, Pastor, you have no idea the burden I bear. And so we see this woman was in a a, a horrible, horrible predicament. There was no human or near remedy, as far as she could see, to her problem. Sometimes, a writer has written, sometimes God allows his people to be pressed into dire circumstances. This isn't always a punishment for sin or for foolish choices. And I don't think that was the case here. We have no intimation that he had lived recklessly or high or that there was sin involved in this situation. Sometimes the Lord allows us to come to the end of our hoarded resources, as the songwriter puts it, so that when he intervenes, his hand of mercy and his provision can be clearly seen. Joseph told his brothers after revealing himself to them years after they sold him into slavery, you thought it evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. The Bible tells us here in verse 1 that her husband had been a man who, who truly feared the Lord. So we have no need to think there was sin involved in this circumstance. Let's face it, we're all members of a fallen race. We will all die at some point. We do not know the circumstances surrounding our home going. 
We don't know how our families will be left. Your best laid plans may uh, go astray. And so let none of us sit smugly and say, that could never happen to me, or my family would never be in that situation. You have no idea on earth what that situation may be. And so we see this pitiful, pitiful picture. A prophet in the Old Testament was an oddity in many ways. Uh, He was called of God only in certain times. The prophets did not serve throughout the whole Old Testament alongside the other offices. God would raise up prophets, if you will, as needed in seasons of serious spiritual decline and apostasy. It was the peculiar office, and every prophet we meet in the Scripture were peculiar personalities, if you want to examine it that way. Only then did a prophet exercise his office when God called him to the kingdom for such a time as this. A prophet just didn't stand on the street corner as a preacher might or a soul winner might or evangelist might and and, and do his prophesying. He did it at the bidding of God at specific times and the message, the exact message, he didn't just go freelance, the exact message he was to deliver was given to him of the Lord. He was called in certain times of, of serious spiritual decline and apostasy. No provision for an upkeep, their upkeep or their, their livelihood was given in the scriptures. As in the case of the priests and the Levites, detailed instruction is given as to how these men were to be and their families were to be supported. Nothing of the kind is recorded in the scripture of the prophets. And so we can only deduct that they were dependent upon the gifts of God's people And uh, those in itinerant work know that could be feast or famine, and sometimes it's more often than not, it's famine than feast. Dependent as they were upon the goodwill of of the Lord's people in a voluntary, free will way, or by working with his own hands, or as it seems to be in Elijah's case or John the Baptist's case, they ate of the land and just what they could find out in the wilderness. But that this prophet was married tells us there was never in the scriptures celibacy taught among those servants of the Lord. He had a family and he supported them as best he could in view of the light of the calling of God upon his life. Which is always at times a struggle with those called in the Lord's service to do the Lord's will in his bidding, provide for their families and to do all in, 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 unto the Lord and in the economy that the Lord has provided for them. Our Lord's disciples, but later became apostles, were in the same circumstance. They were called from their jobs to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can assume that since a prophet was a calling for certain times, now, with that being said, some prophets did serve their whole lives. You think Isaiah, when he began to prophesy, or Jeremiah, but... When they were called to follow the Lord, as the disciples were, Peter left his fishing business. Matthew left his tax-collecting business, a lucrative job. We can assume that they were provided for by the Lord and, and by the kindness of God's people. One of the most interesting verses in the Bible you may overlook. If you've wondered how the Lord and his disciples were, got along, the Bible tells us exactly how they made their living. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 2 tells us two women, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him, our Lord, of their substance. And the, the 
the teaching there, they regularly gave to the support of the Lord and his disciples. Well, this was the case, no doubt, of the apostles. Not only was uh, he training for a vocation and his income limited, you'll recall that Ahab, as I've already referred to, and Jezebel were ruling and were very cruel to the men of God. The prophets were in great danger, according to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. Well, we see this lady's predicament, and we see that the Holy Spirit mentions the only commodity that she had was a bit of oil. Now, oil was as much in demand in the Old Testament as gas or electricity would be today in our lives. It was absolutely a necessity of life. It was used, of course, in cooking and in lamps. It was used medicinally. It was an absolute staple and necessity. And that's why she overlooked, when he asked her what she had, I'm sure the first thing that came to her mind, what assets did she have? Don't you think that this poor lady had already sold off every stick of furniture that she had or whatever could have been uh, turned into money? She had already done that. And so so, uh, prevalent was oil in the household that she didn't think of that as something that could be used to be sold. It was something uh, so desperately needed. And so, as we've already noted, first of all, we see her desperation. True prayer always has an element of desperation about it. Why is it? We've looked at the various aspects of prayer, praise, adoration, petition. And so often the the truest prayer, or when we, we sense the reality and the sincerity of our own praying, is when the Lord does allow these kinds of circumstances in our lives that cause us to be absolutely desperate. She was able to borrow some empty oil pots readily from her neighbors. They were as common as uh, paper plates in your house, these clay pots. Uh, Every household had them, and they were not expensive, and they were readily, we might say like mason jars in old country homes. Every pantry would be full of them. And if you, in in rural Alabama, went to your neighbor and asked to borrow some mason jars, a woman would be glad she would have a box to give you because they're so prevalent. Perhaps there had been a a drought or a famine affecting the crop. Some have surmised that her husband may have been in the oil bit. He may have sold it as a commodity or had a grove of of, uh, olive trees or whatever to produce the oil. But this poor lady comes to Elisha in desperation. And she tells him the obvious, as we often do when we're recounting our case. You know my husband was a ministry student. Yes, he knew that. Some have said that Elisha may have been off ministering when her husband died and was not there and did not readily know about it since she's informing him of it. But you know that my husband was training for the ministry. You know that we are destitute. You know he was a godly man. She begins to state these obvious facts. We can see her in her grief, in her dire desperation. Elisha responds, as we've already pointed out to her, with a question. The Lord often does that. He has to get us to think. We so often are so preoccupied with our problem or even with the surface things of life that we never get below the surface to the root of the problem. And as we often point out, until we can get to the root of the problem, the problem will never be solved. 
People want answers. They don't really want to know about the problem or the cause of the problem. For example, we looked on Sunday night, the, the root of all sin, the sin of pride. Until that's dealt with, other things cannot be dealt with. And so God presses to show us the root of the problem. And so Elisha responds to her with a question that seems quite cold and blunt on the surface. You know, it reminds me of the woman of Canaan who cried to the Lord for mercy for her daughter, who her daughter was vexed with an evil uh, spirit, with the devil. That's a dire circumstance, isn't it? And you can feel a, a parent's pain. I, I talked with a parent today who's in a, with a child who has a dire circumstance and the tears in the, 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 on, over the phone as I talked with that, with that parent. But the answer of our Lord to that woman who had a, a demon-possessed daughter on the surface seems harsh. He told her, I am come, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What a response. What does that have to do? Even a cursory reading of the scripture, we'd say, what does that have to do with my request to help my daughter who is vexed with the devil? He goes on to tell her, it isn't fitting to take the children's food and to give it to dogs. It sounds even worse, doesn't it? All the Jews felt that the Gentiles and the Samaritans were dogs. They were outside of the realm of grace. And our Lord reminds this woman that that was the prevalent religious thought of the day. He's testing her to see what she thinks about that situation. It's a cruel, harsh fact. What do you think of that? Should I take the food that is for the children and give it to dogs? She replied, with a statement that's very bold and plain. She says, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. Jesus answered to her. One of the most amazing responses to an individual in all the scripture, our Lord responds to that lady, O woman, great is thy faith. You see, that's the, the root of all things. Where is your faith? Often the Lord says, according to your faith, be it unto you. Are you looking past the, the, the frames of thought, the prejudices of our culture? Do you think like that? Do you think that I'm come just to the children of Israel? Or am I the Savior of the world? Will I answer, if you think I am truly have the power to deliver your daughter from a demon spirit, uh, do you really believe that? Or do you think I'm just the, the Messiah of the Jews? O oh, woman, great is thy faith, be it unto you, even as thou wilt. See how gracious he is? It's not that the Lord is not going to answer her prayer or help her daughter. He must get us to the place where great faith is exercised. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. We see no clearer example of an answered request and a glorious answer to prayer in that woman who comes to the Lord. And so this is a very similar situation. Our Lord's goal is to increase our faith. Faith is just not something we talk about. As we often remind ourselves here, they that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. We must have our faith increase. What increases our faith? circumstances, dire circumstances. I would grant you if you received a great inheritance today, you might be on cloud nine here at the prayer meeting tonight. 
and have your minds far elsewhere, but that wouldn't necessarily, it might in some souls' minds, be thankful to the Lord, and they may be offering a prayer to the Lord, but I doubt that a, 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 a huge raise or some inheritance or some something in that category would would pr- pr- uh, produce a desire to spend a fervent time in prayer, but a bill that comes to the mail that's due tomorrow or the collector is coming might bring about a different uh, frame of mind. Our Lord's goal is to increase our faith, to show us whether we truly, fully, and totally believe and depend on Him alone. You see, as long as we have something in the pantry that can be sold, we might result to that. As long as we have a connection or know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, we usually go that route, don't we? Oh, I have this burden. I need to get it fixed. I need to get this problem solved. Who do I know? What do they have? What do we have? Uh, Usually we look at what somebody else has, don't we, instead of what we have because we've already surveyed our own circumstances and we don't think very much of it. And so the Lord presses us to turn to him to believe in him alone and that he alone can supply what we truly need. To whom are you depending on? To whom are you depending at this prayer meeting tonight? Have you come, as we've already alluded to, no doubt with burdens and requests, Pressed matters. Where is, does your faith lie? Why did you come? I, I'll ask you, as Elisha asked her, why did you come to me? Why did you come here tonight? In a similar way, Elisha says to her, what do you want from me? That's not a cruel question. I'm sure if Elisha had any resources whatsoever, he would have shared them with her. But he's trying to point her, as we all must be pointed to, to the Lord. That's not a cold, heartless thing. We must go to the Lord. Everything to God in prayer. What do you want from me? What do you expect me to do? She may have thought that Elisha could perform a miracle for her. He was, after all, the man of God. He was a prophet. But when you study the miracles of the Bible, and God is a miracle-working God, miracles are so rare, you'll notice that the miracle performers never performed them for themselves. Not even our Lord turned the stone to bread to feed his hunger. Paul, in the dungeon, prayed for someone to send him a cloak and his books. He didn't conjure up a cloak out of thin air. Though Paul could lay his hands and heal many people, he could not heal a Paph- or did not heal Epaphroditus. Remember, Epaphroditus was sent to Paul with a gift. He got sick while he was there, and he almost. Paul tells the the, the Philippians he almost died. Evidently, they began to wonder why Epaphroditus was gone so long, and criticism reached back to came back to Paul, and Paul said he came on your behalf to bring me a gift. While he was here, he almost died. Have you ever wondered, why didn't Paul lay hands on him and heal him? If God wants everybody healed, and if the apostles healed everybody they came in, that's not the truth. They didn't heal everybody they came in contact with. And so, miracles, while we see them in the Scriptures, they're never done just as some sideshow circus entertainment. 
when they're done, they're done for a specific reason and always to bring great glory to God and God alone. And they're done in such a way that only God can receive the glory from them. What do you want from me? What do you think I can do about your circumstance? Her God, his God was her God. She had the same resources that Elisha did. She knew the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than Elisha did. It is not a cruel thing to point people back to the source of fount of every blessing. It is the Lord Himself. We ought to, and one of the clear signs of being a true child of God is answered prayer. That doesn't mean that God will answer every request. It doesn't mean that He won't leave us in dire circumstances for extended periods of time. But every child of God can pray. The God who hears Elisha is the God who hears your prayer at this prayer meeting tonight. The God who answered the Apostle Paul is the same God that we can call on and will call on here tonight. She has no answer to his question. We often just want the problem resolved. We've really not given much thought about how it should be solved or how God can get great glory out of it. We just don't want the difficulty. Problem comes, what's the first thing? Get it out of here. I don't want it. I don't want this need, this sorrow, this burden, this need, this pressing situation. I, I want to be healed. I want it over with now. I want it in my terms. And she comes immediately to him. And I'm not underestimating her problem at all. I've never been at the point where my children are about to be sold into slavery. But her greatest need was what only God could do for her. Elisha couldn't pay off her indenturedness, her, her, her debt. He couldn't cause the creditors to stop. She may have thought perhaps he has some connections. He may know someone, but a prophet is despised in his own country, and especially in that time, in that day, he had no esteem whatsoever. As selfish beings, we tend to be more concerned about our happiness than we are about our holiness But God always desires to perfect our faith. Job said after his great trial, many such things are with him. Not only do we see her desperation, but we see her disappointment. Elisha says, I I don't have and, and I cannot give you what you need. In effect, it is beyond my power to help you. Possibly he was trying to press upon her the gravity of the situation that though he was a prophet, even he could not perform a miracle on her account. He, he had no power to do that just because she had a need. He was showing her that he was a mere man, that he too had to get his needs answered in answer to prayer. Only God could supply her need. What she needed was from the Lord. The spiritual resources we so desperately need tonight, what you truly need, can only be supplied by the Lord in answer to believing prayer. At the same time, she already had the resources that she needed. What is the Lord going to do? He's going to take what she has and make it what she needs. Her testimony tells us in verse 2, Thine handmaid hath not anything. How often do we look down upon what the Lord has given us? Well, it's not enough. What can this $5 do? The bill is $10,000. Whatever the situation is, 
we, we look down on what God has allowed us to have and look to something else, someone else. I don't have anything in the house save a pot of oil. Does that not remind you of our Lord's disciples and when the, the thousands were needing to be fed and all they could produce was a little boy's lunch? And what was the response? What is this? What are these among so many? Our reasoning is often the same. And we moan. We have nothing. We have no connections. We're just the remnants. The nation has gone too far. After all, the Supreme Court has already ruled. or Whatever the circumstance is, it always seems impossible to us. May I suggest to you tonight that as a child of God, as a believer in Christ, saved by the blood of the crucified one, that you are complete in Christ. You are complete in Him. All you need is in Him. For within Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. We see her desperation, her disappointment. It gets worse before it gets better, doesn't it? And then we see her deliverance. I need not remind you that in the Bible... And the reason I selected this portion of Scripture is because the very thing she had that she so lightly esteemed represents the, the oil in the Bible. It's always, or very often, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We forget about the resident and silent member of the Godhead who indwells our bodies. May I remind you that when our Lord was about to leave His disciples physically he said i'm going away from you but i'm going to send another in my place the holy spirit of god is co-equal with god the father and god the son he is in our midst tonight jesus said there i am in the midst of them when we gather together he is in our midst by his spirit his spirit is just as real and literally as the crucified body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It sits at the right hand of God the Father just now making intercession for us. And at salvation, he comes and dwells the body of every believer. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. And you're not your own. You're bought with a price. We're redeemed with the blood of the crucified one. Therefore, because we're bought with a price and we're not our own, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The simplest, youngest, feeblest believer in Christ has living within him the same Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul or Elisha had dwelling within him. Jesus said to his disciples just before he went to the cross in John 14, I will pray, I'll ask the Father, and I want you to know that the Father does everything the Son asks, without exception. He always asks according to the perfect will of the Father. He always asks exactly what we need. And he said, I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Don't you know, that how often did the Lord comfort the disciples? Remember they were in the storm, and he was asleep, and they roused him, carest thou not that we perish? One word, peace, be still. They were comforted over and over again. And I dare say, if you knew, if the Lord Jesus Christ was physically, bodily right beside you tonight, there's not a door in Birmingham that you wouldn't knock on and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There's not a thing on earth that you would do that you'd be afraid to do if Jesus Christ were literally physically here at your side tonight. But I want you to know he is. He is. I will send you another comforter that he may abide with you. How long? Forever. Even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive. Because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him. For he dwelleth with you. At that time, the Holy Spirit had not come to indwell believers as he did on the day of Pentecost. And from that point on, he dwelleth with you. And shall be in you. You see how specific our Lord is in teaching the Bible. How clear he draws the lines. He's with you now. There will come a time he shall be in you. And I just read the portion of scripture from Paul saying, Every true believer has the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them. Folks, we may not look like much tonight. If you were to combine all of our assets together, you might not have a very big number. If we could liquidate all that we had tonight, I don't know how much we'd come up with, but that's not the point. Clay pots aren't very fancy, are they? they are, they're not rare. I've never seen a clay pot unless it was something from a, a, a mummy tomb from Egypt auctioned off for very much. The, the pots that we have, the clay pots, and even the kind that this lady would have had were like mason jars. They, they would not fetch very much in an auction. Our frail bodies are wearing out with all the problems of sickness and age and decay, and yet the Holy Spirit of God has chosen to live in these bodies. If you were to have seen the tabernacle in the Old Testament from a distance, did you know that, and I'm not being sacrilegious, that it it was from the outside, it was not a beautiful sight. In fact, it was probably somewhat of an ugly structure. I'm talking about from the outside. Unlike Solomon's temple, which was a glorious architectural wonder from the outside, which pictures the glorious bodies we one day will have. But the the tabernacle of old, which was replaced later by the temple, was a crude structure of animal skins draped over wooden poles. And, And the tabernacle from the outside belied what was housed on the inside. If you went inside the tabernacle, there you saw the lavishly woven veil and the the golden appointments and the the vessels of honor that the Lord did and the Ark of the Covenant, all of its glorious splendor. It is what is within us that is most glorious. It is what distinguishes the child of God from every other person on earth. It is the very presence of God himself that indwells these tents, these bodies. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It is the dividing line. It is the delineating thing between a saved person and a lost person. No matter how weak your body may be, it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, tonight as we're about to go into prayer. So often great expectations are placed upon the pastor. We need answers, pastor. We need resources. And I'm going to ask you just what Elisha asked this lady. What shall I do for you?
Why did you come here tonight to this prayer meeting? What are you seeking? What hast thou in the house? Some, no doubt, are empty. You say, Brother Lamb, I don't have anything whatsoever. I am absolutely empty. You have not the Holy Spirit within you because you're lost. There's some people in that capacity. What I'm saying is absolutely dead to you. It is just as academic as if I was reading the won't ads or an encyclopedia. The most powerful portions of Scripture to a lost person, you might as well be reading the fine print of a contract. It has no, no meaning to them whatsoever because the Spirit of God has not shown them, not in, in, in regenerated them and given them the ability to appreciate what they're hearing. You may say, if I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, those who are saved, why is it that I feel so defeated, so useless, so powerless, so dry? The widow was asking Elisha for something she already had. The Apostle Paul said, we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. The Holy Spirit is a person. I want to remind you tonight as we come to him in prayer that as a person, just as you can be grieved, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. He's saddened by sin. He's horrified by our disobedience and rebellion. By our uncontrolled lusts, our our undisciplined hearts and minds grieves the Holy Spirit just as it would grieve you if a, a loved one treated you that way. He can be quenched. He is quenched when we disobey His promptings. The Holy Spirit within a child of God will prompt us to use the gifts that He's so gloriously lavished upon us. But we say, no, I don't want to do that. Or I don't think that's important. Or not now. And the Holy Spirit is quenched. He can be vexed. That means exasperated by or hurt by our rebellion to His Word. The only thing we know anything of, of the Holy Spirit or of the Son of God or the God, the Father is through His Word. How lightly we esteem the Word of God. It is the only means of salvation. How is a person saved? The seed is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit implants it within the heart and gives birth. How will we grow thereby? It will be the Word of God. How, how is anything done in our hearts and lives? It is by the precious, infallible Word of God. He can be grieved and quenched and vexed, and He can be despited. Another way the Scripture puts it, in other words, ignored. When you despite someone, you just... Consider them not important enough to consider. Turn up our nose and go the other way. How people treat other people, they often treat the Holy Spirit in that way. And he's injured and offended. Now, we wouldn't do any of these things to the physical presence of Jesus Christ if he was sitting at our dining room table or walking with us or driving along with us in the car. 
We wouldn't grieve the Lord. We would not turn on a song, a lustful song. We would not listen to, to some outrageous comedy. We would not laugh at that which the, whole, which the Lord died to, to save us from. As our, we saw in the bulletin on Sunday, one of the quotes there. We would not think of turning on some lascivious thing if the Lord Jesus Christ were sitting right there in our living room watching it with us. We wouldn't think of saying, if the Lord were in there and said, Chris, go knock on that door, or go take that, that, help that person out, or speak to that person. We wouldn't dare say, no, I'm not going to do that. If the Lord was physically there, we wouldn't say, no, I'm not going to do that. We wouldn't exasperate him or hurt him in any way, would we? We certainly would ignore the Lord if he was a guest in our home. We, we wouldn't do that. The resources of the Holy Spirit are only limited by sin and unbelief. Jesus said, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. In closing night, I want you to turn over to John chapter 7, one of the most probably overlooked portions of Scripture in dealing with the Holy Spirit. Our Lord is speaking here, and he tells us the, the prerequisites of the Holy Spirit's doing and giving all in our lives that we need as believers. John chapter 7 and verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then, aren't you glad when the Bible defines what he's talking about? He gives us that illustration. If you'll read far enough in any portion of scripture, you'll figure out what it's saying. Verse 39 just happens, it says, this he spake of the Spirit. So the rivers of living water are a picture of what? This he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive... For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, or not given in the way that he would be of New Testament believers. He came upon them for service, but he would be in them because Jesus was not yet glorified. But I call your attention to verse 37. There are two requisites or prerequisites there for the filling or the control of the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't have time to belabor this point tonight, but I, I, you know that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not to be thought of as an amount, as a glass. You might say the glass is half full, three quarters full, or all the way full. But there's, not, there's not an amount of the Holy Spirit. He's not given out and, and doled out in amounts. And the filling of the Holy Spirit should not be thought of as an amount or filling of your body. But if you study it in the Scriptures, the feeling is the control, the control of the Holy Spirit. And so he says here, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. There are two things that we see here for the control of the Holy Spirit. There must be a thirst. Nobody takes a drink of water unless they're thirsty. The great, one of the great... Uh, problems of aging that sometimes elderly people don't feel the need to drink and so they don't drink but there's a far greater problem when a child of God becomes so satiated with the things of the world they don't have a thirst for what only the Holy Spirit can give and so 
a prerequisite here is that there must be a thirst. We sang about it tonight. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after you. Does it? Does it really? Are you that thirsty for the Holy Spirit to absolutely control you? Jesus says here, if any man thirsts, what a condition. Are you thirsty? You answer the question. Let him come unto me and drink. Kenneth Weiss in his commentary says, if any man thirsts refers to a desire on the part of the believer that the Holy Spirit be the one to control his every thought, word, and deed. We do not take a drink of water unless we're thirsty. And we do not appropriate the control of the Holy Spirit unless we desire him to control us. A desire for his control will include, among other things, a desire that he calls us to judge sin in our lives. A desire that he put sin out of our lives and keep it out. A desire that he separate us from all the ties we might have with that system of evil called the world. A desire that he dethrone our self-life and enthrone the Lord Jesus as absolute Lord and Master. A desire that he produce in us his own fruit. A desire that he make us Christ-like. A desire that he lead us and teach us. Such a desire is a serious thing. It involves crucifixion of self and self dies hard the spirit controlled life is a crucified life the other requirement is trust our lord said he that believeth on on me out of his from out of his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water we're to receive this by faith it is this constant desire for the spirit's control and a trust in the lord jesus for the Spirit's control that results in the Spirit-controlled life. This woman had a great need, didn't she? But she had the source. The answer was already hers. And I would say that every child of God has the same thing. C.H. Spurgeon writes, The saints with one voice confess of his fullness we have all received. The limit of his outpouring is our capacity to receive. And that limit is often set by our straightened prayers. We have not because we ask not or because we ask amiss. If our desires were more expanded, our receipts would be more extended. We fail to bring empty vessels to the prayer meeting. And therefore, the oil is stayed. You didn't plan to get an answer tonight, did you? Did you bring empty vessels? We do not sufficiently see our poverty. And we do not therefore enlarge our longings. Oh, for a heart insatiable for Christ. A soul more greedy than the grave itself, which is never satisfied. Then would rivers of the heavenly oil flow in upon us and we should be filled with all the fullness of God. To the last hour of time, it shall never be said that a single sinner has sought his face in vain or that an empty vessel has at last been found which Jesus cannot fill. The power of the Holy Spirit to convict, convert, console, and sanctify shall also abide to the end of the age. Never shall there be found a weeping penitent whom he cannot cheer with a lively hope and lead to Jesus for eternal salvation, nor a struggling believer whom he cannot lead on to certain and complete victory. Perfect. 
perfection itself, he shall always be able to work in all the saints, even meekness for their holy heritage above. None of us should despond when we discover in you our own natural inability and deadness. Our hope was never based on created power. A lively hope has its foundation in the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit. And that cannot be the object, subject of question or change. For the salvation of all the elect, the sacred trinity will work together till all shall be accomplished. What do you want me to do? Elisha asked the woman. Then he asked her, what do you have? And I would ask us, child of God, church of Christ, here gathered tonight at this prayer meeting, what do we want the Lord to do? Uh, Bless us. Uh, Some other generic, feeble thing. But I think in this room gathered here, that in every heart there's some specific things that, that need to be done. And I'd also suggest that all that we need is found not in this building, but in our Lord Jesus Christ. We sing that song, There's Not a Friend Like the Lowly Jesus. Never did a saint find him that he did not desire him. I'm not quoting it just right. Did ever a saint seek him in vain? He's always there. He will answer the need. Or sinner find that he would not take him. Do you desire to be saved? Run to Jesus Christ tonight. He'll save you. Your very desire for Him to save you is indication that He's at work. Child of God, have you used up all your resources? All but the Holy Spirit that indwells within you, who will lead you and guide you into all truth, who's more than able and willing to sanctify you, who will fill you and control you and use you for His honor and glory? She filled the pots obediently. There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. And she told the man of God, he said, Go and sell the oil. Use what the Lord has given you for his honor and glory. He's not given us the Holy Spirit to entertain ourselves and to hide, but to use. It is the way his business is done. If we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, we better have the oil of the Holy Spirit or all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And for that we come to ask tonight.